Welcome to IEEE Tech Talk, Innovation at Work, a brand new podcast from IEEE Educational Activities. I'm Allison, your host, and today we're talking with Dr. Steve Vozer, Chief Technology Officer and co-founder of May Mobility, a U.S.-based startup focused on developing new types of autonomous vehicles with the goal of safely bringing the technology to the streets in the near term. Steve has a PhD in mechanical engineering from the University of Michigan and in 2012 was named a human-robot interaction pioneer for his PhD work on telerobotic mobile manipulation. He went on to work at Johns Hopkins University developing telerobotic satellite servicing technology for NASA and then returned to the University of Michigan to work on Ford's next-generation self-driving car program. Welcome, Steve. Very great to be here. Thank you. Let's talk a little bit about the early days. What motivated you to study mechanical engineering? You know, honestly, it was a family connection. I always sort of did well in the math and science areas in school. Those were, um, you know, things that were really interesting to me. And uh, I have an older sister that went and did mechanical engineering, who's about five years older than me. Uh, and I was sort of fascinated by what, what it was that she was doing. So I definitely wanted to go and do engineering. And then the question was, was what type? And I was looking at the different engineering disciplines. Uh, sometimes I have a hard time making up my mind about what I want to do. And so I definitely was looking around at the different engineering disciplines and, and you know, mechanical engineering um, is, I would say, one of, if not the most broad discipline. You know, it covers everything from you know, uh, heat transfer to thermodynamics, controls, statics, dynamics, uh, just lots of different topics. And I, I thought that that would, you know, get me sort of the broadest exposure to the most amount of things. And, and it was, I was right, you know, I've worked on, on various projects professionally, ranging from combustion uh, to nanomaterials and, and now robotics. Uh, and that's all, you know, due to the fundamentals that I learned in, in uh, you know, my mechanical engineering coursework. So you're actually the co-founder of two startups, May Mobility and Absolute Nano. As someone with a technical background rather than a business background, what's the one piece of advice you wish someone gave you before you started your company? It's a good question. I think, you know, one of the things that I found myself a little bit behind the eight ball on was just all of the legalese and all of the legal requirements um, having to do with incorporation and um, you know, getting funding and signing contracts and making sure that everything's on the up and up and, you know, there's special language that lawyers use and, you know, lawyers are expensive. We have some really great ones at, at May, um, but it's really good to sort of have a good grasp of, you know, what the legal uh, consequences of what you're doing are so that you can move quickly and you're not dependent on lawyers for for everything. And so, you know, I touch on IP law, I, I touch on, you know, sort of uh, corporate law, uh, and there's all sorts of little wrinkles that that I, I sort of need to know about. And so I think, you know, just studying a little bit of that and, uh, and understanding sort of the legal aspects of running a business would have been very helpful. How did you ultimately get more comfortable with the legal aspects of the business? Was researching the subject on your own enough, or did you end up enrolling in a more formalized learning program? Well, certainly what I had to do was, uh, you know, do a lot of things ad hoc. You know, I'd be on the call with an immigration attorney and furiously Googling terms they were using that I had never heard of. 
Um, and, uh, you know, I never did take advantage of, you know, like a patent law class at the university, which was offered. Um, and, uh, you know, so I definitely was, was going a little bit more, uh, you know, as, as needed. Uh, and I think a little bit would have been helpful to, you know, have a little bit more structure in place ahead of time so that I you know, felt confident going into some of those conversations. Mm-hmm. Going back to May Mobility, what inspired you to start the company? And can you speak to your work with autonomous vehicles and different sensing modalities? Sure. So, you know, what inspired uh, my co-founders and I to start May Mobility was really looking around at the landscape of autonomous cars and self-driving cars in late 2016, early 2017. And, you know, everyone was out there. There's a lot of money uh, out there and not a lot of progress or, or product. Um, you know, everybody seemed to be shooting for level five, you know, anywhere, anytime, self-driving cars. And we seemed to be really far away from that. And nobody seemed to be talking about, you know, practical ways that we could go, uh, you know, get get information, deploy vehicles in the here and now, and really, you know, ramp up to uh, self-driving cars. And so May was was founded really with the notion that, you know, there are things that we can do now. There's markets that we can address now without waiting for full uh, level five autonomy, without waiting for the next gen or the next two or three gens of sensors, uh, without waiting for, uh, you know, compute uh, abilities to to uh, increase, you know, orders of magnitude. But there are real problems that we can address now and real needs that we can address now uh, with autonomous technology that's available today. And that's sort of where we where we started. And so we started looking at, you know, what those markets can be. And it, it turns out that, you know, if you're sticking to lower speeds and you have lower kinetic energy, you're able to, uh, you know, go out into the market with the technologies available today. And so that's really what we went over, went after and tried to tackle rather than, um, you know, trying to boil the whole ocean. We got very, very focused on, you know, sort of the low speed shuttle market um, rather than looking at everything all at once. And it's been able, it's, it's, it's been very freeing actually to be able to define that operational design domain so completely and uh, be really targeted in how we execute on it. You mentioned other companies pushing for level five autonomy. While I'd imagine it'd be confusing to refer to autonomous vehicles by their SAE levels from a public standpoint, what do you think about terms like self-driving and autopilot being used to describe the vehicles that are available for consumer use today? Certainly it's, it's confusing, right? Um, I think that the levels themselves are a little bit confusing. You know, those are typically things like autopilot or GM super cruise. That's a level two vehicle. And then some people are, are referring to things as level two plus. Well, that, that doesn't really have a meaning in the SAE standards. So it all depends. I think that there, there is a, a, a problem with calling things autonomous. Um, Self-driving is more of a gray area for me, but the fact of the matter is, you know, we haven't really standardized on terms and it does cause consumer confusion. So is it self-driving because it's self-driving some of the time? Is it autonomous because it's autonomous some of the time? You know, I think I think that driver assist is really a more appropriate term for those types of level two automated driving, but, uh, you know, marketing people are going to do what marketing people are going to do and it's sort of up to uh, the, the 
the industry and the community to, you know, enforce some standards and be be deliberate and clear about what the capabilities of different vehicles are. So I don't really have a horse in the race of like what we should call things, but I definitely think that there is a lot of hype in the industry and it's not being helped by uh, confusing terms. Very true. The terms autopilot and self-driving tend to convey this sort of set it and forget it mentality, which isn't where the technology is at. But from a marketing and media perspective, those terms give a very clear idea and are easier for the average consumer to grasp. Having level two autonomous vehicle in a headline, the public's going to have more questions about what that is. Exactly. Um, coming together to create standard terms that are more accessible to the public. Do you think that's something that would have to be decided by the industry on a global scale? I mean, I think that the, you know, the, the irony of it is that that was what the SAE levels were supposed to do is it was supposed to uh, define in the industry what um, capabilities of these of these vehicles are. Uh, and then, you know, someone comes out with level two plus and that's totally outside of the outside of the categorization or of the standards. Um, and I think that. It was a noble pursuit. I think that it was helpful in helping people talk and understand about the different levels of self-driving. Um, but I think that it was published pretty early uh, before we really understood what the use cases would be. Uh, I think that SAE, and I, I don't know if this is correct, but I think that there's been some updates uh, as well, or, or at least some proposed updates. And they start to, um, those, those updates start to get to the more nuance of, you know, what is autonomous and what is self-driving and defining them a little bit more. I think that that's helpful. Uh, but I think definitely using just the straight up levels is very confusing. And it seems like the news and media has not picked up on that extra level of nuance of what the difference is. So we've talked about something the industry could improve. On the flip side, what excites you most about the global autonomous vehicle landscape? You know, what's most exciting to me is the opportunity that we have to transform cities with uh, self-driving technology. So really putting people first and rethinking how we build out the places where people live and work and play um, to be more people-centric and people-friendly, um, you know, that's one of the things that I find sort of most gratifying. It's great to go in and, and solve a traffic problem or, or, you know, provide service for people who need it now. But when we're thinking about how, um, you know, urban areas can be revitalized or new urban areas can be built up, you know, thinking about the use case for autonomous vehicles when, uh, you know, in the next 10, 20 years um, is really exciting that we can be very purposeful and deliberate about how we build out those cities to enable autonomous vehicles and allow also for, you know, build, building really for people first and to prioritize uh, cyclists and pedestrians and vulnerable road users and, you know, really have the ability to give people a lot of options and how they get around, uh, you know, these, these areas. That's really what's most exciting to me. I think, you know, secondarily, just sort of giving people time back in their in their lives. So if they want to commute in a certain way, they can. If they choose not to, they can, you know, ride an autonomous vehicle. I think that there's a lot of time and effort that can be saved if we give people more and different transportation options. Jumping more to the technical side of things, you do a lot of work with sensors. How effective are sensors for vehicle perception in less than ideal road conditions? For example, newly paved roads where the lane markings haven't been painted yet, or the opposite, worn roads with potholes that may be filled with gravel or rainwater? So I'll answer this question in a couple different ways. Um, every sensor, due to 
the physics of how it works has strengths and weaknesses. You know, this is why you see May and uh, other self-driving car companies often employ a multimodal sensing solution. Uh, we use LiDAR, camera, and radar, and so where one sensor may be weak, another uh, sensor may be strong. So we want them to have sort of orthogonal failure modes and strengths and weaknesses that complement each other. Uh, and so when it's rainy or foggy, you can rely more on the radar. Whereas if you have a scenario where the radar may get or tripped up, you can rely more on the camera and the, uh, the LIDAR sensor. So that is the purpose of having so many different types of sensors that you can have the best view possible. So for this specific example, of um, you know roads with ambiguous lane markings, we'll say um, you know that's actually one of the reasons why we don't do any navigation off of the lane markings. We look at actually the 3D structure around the vehicle to localize rather than looking at the lane markings because it doesn't take much uh, for the lane markings to be obscured. It could be that the lanes are, are well-worn, they haven't been put down yet, but it could be a light dusting of snow or even leaves on the ground that really obscures those lane markings and you know then you're then you're in a problem spot. So we prefer to localize and, and to make a lot of decisions about where we are based on the structure of the environment around us, which is much less likely to change than something like the road paint. Um, so I guess to answer that question, use multimodal sensors uh, to be able to have complementary strengths and weaknesses. And then we also stru structure the way that we do localization and tracking and and, and uh, you know, other perception type tasks um, to take advantage of things that humans might not be able to do very well, uh, like figuring out the exact distance uh, to 3D structure, uh, but that you know, self-driving cars due to their you know, high fidelity sensors are, are very good at. And so we don't always do what the, the obvious answer is. And so it means that we structure our algorithms uh, to take advantage of the strengths and hide the weaknesses. Are there any new up and coming types of sensors that could possibly be used in the near future? And which ones do you find the most promising? Yeah, there's lots of new types of uh, sensors out there. I'd say that uh, two types of sensors that I'm particularly interested in accomplish something very similar, but in different ways. And that is to get dense point cloud information with Doppler velocity information uh, simultaneously. So basically combines the strengths of LIDAR and radar. And uh, in one case, what you have is FMCW LIDAR. Uh, so they're actually able to read the Doppler shift on LiDAR data, which typically you, you don't see. Uh, it's a sort of a difficult problem to tackle. Uh, but with that, you get instantaneous velocity information, so you don't have to differentiate uh, the position information. So that's exciting. And then the other way to do that is actually uh, imaging radar technology. So today, most radar gets you not, not sort of dense point clouds, but especially if you're working with sort of traditional automotive radar, getting tracks. Uh, sort of information about where other things might be, but you're not getting an image. Uh, whereas imaging radar gives you data that looks more like what you might expect of the dense point cloud from LIDAR, uh, but you know, in a sort of solid state radar, you know, readily mass produced sort of form factor. Um, so those are two things to definitely watch out for. Very interesting. So in general, autonomous vehicle technology is a popular topic, but What's one aspect of it that you think is often overlooked or doesn't get enough credit? Would that be sensors or something else? Uh, so one 
piece of technology in self-driving that doesn't really get a lot of uh, fanfare but is vitally important is inertial sensing. This is basically the sensor on the vehicle that determines um, you know, how far the car has driven uh, using basically an inertial measurement unit. It's not looking outward, so it doesn't get all the fancy press of you know, LIDAR and radar and cameras, uh, but it is really vital to localizing the car or, or figuring out where the car is in the world. Uh, and in fact, the better you can uh, get your, what's called dead reckoning, which is understanding how far the car has moved without basing your information off of exter uh, external facing sensors, the better you can dead reckon, the less work your localization from uh, sort of a loop closure perspective, the less work you have to do to sort of correct what, uh, I'm saying this terribly, that's <laughs> work you have to do to correct that. So basically, when you are you know, driving a self-driving car, there's two ways to tell where you are. <clears throat> it's the same way that sort of humans work. There's your inner ear, uh, which is basically your inertial measurement unit. And then there's your eyes, which give you, you know, visual feedback. If you close your eyes and start to take a few steps forward, you can pretty well navigate for a little while. Uh, and that's called dead reckoning. And uh, you don't get any visual feedback. You're just going off of your inner ear and you can count your steps. You can have a good idea of how far you've gone. You open your eyes then and uh, you can figure out and get some feedback about how far you you, you actually have gone. Uh, Self-driving car works in a similar way with the IMU and uh, wheel encoders typically saying how far you've gone without looking externally. And then you do what's called uh, a loop closure to determine if that is correct or any corrections you need to make on that based on you know what you see with your lidar radar or even cameras um, the better you're done reckoning the less work you have to do on the um, the loop closure front and so your algorithms can be simpler and you can take up less compute processing power um, so that's a, a you know a pretty uh, interesting sensor that doesn't get a lot of press but is vitally important to self-driving cars you are listening to ieee tech talk innovation at work a podcast hosted by IEEE Educational Activities. If you want to learn more about IMUs and dead reckoning from Steve, check out Sensors for Autonomous Vehicles, Steve's course in the IEEE Guide to Autonomous Vehicle Technology. To learn more about this course program, go to innovationatwork.ieee.org slash tech talk, or click the link in the description below. And now back to the interview. One of the aspects of autonomous vehicles and connected cars in general that does tend to get a lot of attention is security. Specific to vehicle-to-vehicle -vehicle communications, what security challenges do connected vehicles face? Sure, so I'll, I'll open this up actually to not just vehicle-to-vehicle, -vehicle, but vehicle-to-infrastructure, which is V2I, or you know, V2X, which is vehicle-to-anything communications. Um, you know, there are security challenges to that, especially if you're gonna grant you know, driving uh, decision-making to uh, based on information that you're, you're gathering from an outside source. So we at May actually do deploy uh, infrastructure in the environments in which we operate. However, it's on our own closed network. So we're able to authenticate and be really rigid uh, and strict about the devices that are allowed uh, in that network. Uh, and so we're, we're um, you know, able to encrypt that and we don't have to worry about sort of like open standards or open, open access. So today we're protected because it's sort of a closed network and we don't have to worry about opening it up. And you know, we're using security best practices and state of the art encryption methodology. 
but you know once you have vehicles that are out in the world you know talking to one another you have to have them be open otherwise you're not going to reap the benefits uh, and you start to see this with you know 5g and, and dsrc you know we are not in the business of developing those standards but we do have a big stake in it uh, and so you know we we want to make sure that those devices are going to be secure and we would not put anything on the vehicle that would open us up to an attack vector you know in a manner that would be sort of open to to anyone and so there's ways that we can protect ourselves you know putting uh gaps uh, and firewalls in between us and, and things like the internet or you know not allowing connected infrastructure to influence driving behavior directly you know having influence decisions but ultimately you know, other information is the thing that prioritizes uh, or that gets priority. Um, but, you know, it's definitely a, a hot topic and it's something that uh, is is going to be an issue, you know, for a while, uh, just like it is a hot topic for and vitally important for, you know, the mobile phones and uh, laptops and our, our other bits of infrastructure. So it's definitely a work in progress. But today, you know, we do make sure that we are staying up to date on, you know, best practices in security. Yeah, in today's world, security seems to be a hot topic for most everything. So looking into the future, where do you see autonomous vehicle technology going in the next five years? If you had to give your best prediction, what might a city that leverages autonomous shuttles or something like that look like? Or is five years too short a time span to anticipate any major differences? Yeah, I think, I mean, five years is a pretty short time horizon in the world of automotive and for self-driving cars. I think that we'll still be... Um, will be in an interesting place. I think uh, 2021 is a time frame in which a lot of companies have announced plans to you know, start robo-taxi services in various urban areas. Uh, it'll be interesting to see if that timeline, you know, they hit that or if that will slip. But I think, you know, really what you're going to see is a, a proliferation of, you know, this shuttle market uh, being, you know, the first market that, that you see real penetration in. Uh, the sort of low speed, uh, uh, you know, geofenced environment type of uh, application. I think that you are going to see more and more of those. And obviously, I'm biased, but hopefully more and more of the of the May shuttles in, in those types of environments. I think we're a really long way out from a consumer purchasable uh, self-driving car, you know, much more than five years out. Um, they still require a lot of work and maintenance and calibration, uh, and they need to be operated very in a very specific manner. And I just don't see all of those challenges being solved in a way that you, know, you can sell a car and, and have it be shipped off and, you know, work for on the road for 10 years with just minor, you know, maintenance done by, uh, you know, a, a, a mechanic shop. So I think we're going to see most things in a fleet type of operational setting. And then again, mostly relegated to the low speed geofence type environments. In terms of what's available today, could you speak to the difference in complexity between a shuttle running a closed loop like a college campus or a corporate campus, as opposed to a more open environment like the route a shuttle might take in a city? Yeah, so I think, you know, the, the higher the complexity of the environment, the more uncertainty there is, the more difficult it's going to be. You know, we can see that there is automation happening you know, at, at large scales in the most controlled environments. So the most extreme example of a controlled environment would be, um, you know, like a warehouse. And they they have robots that go and, and pick up shelves and you know, deliver those shelves to people rather than having people walk to the shelves. 
And that's sort of the ultimate controlled environment, right? Because, you know, whoever owns and operates those robots employs the people around them and they can set up safety procedures and things like that. As soon as you start to get members of the general public, it gets to be a little bit more uncertain. And then certainly we've seen with our public road deployments, um, you never know what you're going to get when you go on the public roads. We've seen, you know, pedal pubs and police horses and, and things like that. So definitely complexity plays a big factor in, you know, determining when and where you're going to see uh, self-driving cars on the roads first. And I would predict that something more like a, a more benign um, corporate or college campus or even an office park will will uh, you know see more application uh, sooner of, of self-driving cars uh, than you know something like a busy urban center. With so many fascinating areas to work on in autonomous vehicle technology, what advice would you give to students or young professionals who are interested in possibly pursuing a career in this field? My advice would be, uh, particularly for, for students, is to get involved in engineering projects. So one of the things that we value the most at May is you know, robotics experience. So whether you were working on an autonomous boat or uh, you know you worked on your mini Baja car uh, and you want to work on you know the, the vehicle chassis for us, um, we really like people who have that sort of real world, get your hands dirty type of experience. And so we definitely prioritize those types of students over uh, you know folks who have not had that type of hands-on experience. For young professionals, you know, I would say, again, volunteering and getting a sense of the landscape, the competitive landscape and getting your hands on as much as possible, you know, getting working on real hardware. Um, things in simulation are great, but, uh, you know, they always work uh, as well as the simulation works. And so we, we really like people who have sort of that real world experience. And I would advocate that everybody get at least some of that. Is that the kind of thing that when you were a student, you were able to easily find through your university? Or did you have to look for opportunities elsewhere, like corporate internships? You know, I think it depends on the university there. You know, the University of Michigan has a lot of uh, student engineering groups, you know, world-class solar car team. Uh, there's Mini Baja, Formula SAE. There's uh, so many robotics team projects that they've formed a um, student group just for members of the student robotics team projects. Um, and so, you know, I think that there's plenty of opportunities and most schools will actually allow you to, you know, if, you, if there's a, not a club or a project that interests you, you know, will allow you to go and, and start one. And so there's plenty of, you know, different competitions and, uh, and groups that do sort of intercollegiate type activities and competitions that, that should be of interest to folks who are, you know, in their, in their undergrad and even in their graduate career. Was there a particular project you were involved in that you found the experience to be the most valuable or that you were the most passionate about at the time? So I give this advice, but I did not actually have that type of experience. I'm very envious of the folks who did work on those types of things. And so I feel really grateful that the, the work that I did uh, at the University of Michigan as, as a postdoc was uh, very hands-on, very sort of out in the field, field robotics type work. So that's the closest analog I have. Uh, it's very difficult to get that exact type of experience. And so that's why my recommendation would be to do it on sort of like a student project team. So now we're going to move into what I call our not so rapid fire round, because I do like to throw in some trickier questions. Ready? Yes. Okay. Favorite hobby? Trivia. Ooh, favorite piece of trivia? Oh, um, I'm, I'm particularly fond of Olympics trivia. I don't know why it's, that's very interesting to me. But if there's a piece of trivia, uh, no, I'll, I'll just go with that. 
<laughs> Specifically Olympics trivia or Simpsons trivia. I'm very good at that. Last place you traveled? Uh, I think the last place I traveled was San Francisco. Three things you bring with you on a deserted island. Oh, um, I could bring uh, a signal flare. A, uh, if I'm going to be there for a while, I guess I would need some food and a hammock. Three qualities that got you to where you are today. Um, I think curiosity, um, persistence, and um, being in the right place at the right time. Best advice you ever received. Perfect is the enemy of the good. Oh, that's a good one. Most unusual class you've ever taken. Most unusual class I've ever taken um, was probably a survey course of Russian history and sociology. I I don't know why it counted for humanities credit, but it but it did, and it sort of covered Russian history from basically the the freeing of the serfs to World War II, and it was just sort of bizarrely fascinating and weird. Very far outside your major, but you got to get those prerequisites in. Exactly. Had to get that humanities credit somehow. I think it counted as sociology. I don't know why. It was strange. Ah. Change you'd like to see in your industry? Um, there's just a lot of hype, and I wish that people would, uh, would <laughs> be more transparent and real about the capabilities uh, and their future roadmaps. Um, you know, I think as a company, May tries to be really honest and, you know, out there, and then we, we get drowned out by, uh, you know, companies making very bold claims with having nothing to back it up. What do you enjoy most about engineering? Uh, I really like having something tangible at the end of the day to point to or to hold in my hand and say, this works, we did this, you know, the world is a better place because we were able to do, you know, X, Y, Z, and really just see it in action. And what you enjoy least? Budgets. <laughs> Not the legal aspects? Those are more interesting to me now. I have uh, I can at least appreciate, especially like the IP law and the strategy around that, but budgets. I'm sorry to my VP of finance, but <laughs> if he's listening. I, we, I, I like you, Brett. That's why we have you. <laughs> so if budget was unlimited then, what would be the first project you'd channel it toward? Oh my gosh. Uh, there's just all kinds of extraneous uh, uh, bells and whistles that I would love to add that were have hit the cutting room floor because uh, they, they were not in the budget, but uh, all kinds of cool uh, experiments that I'd like to run that uh, we just don't have the resources for. How do you define success? Uh, making an impact on people's lives. In positive impact. <laughs> the positive part is important. Yes, yes. A negative impact, would say, I would say that is not a success. With that in mind, what would you consider to be your greatest success, personally or professionally? You know, I'm really proud of the work that we've we've done at May. We've got 90 full-time employees. We also have over 100 um, part-time employees, contractors. And, uh, you know, it's really great to sort of give that economic opportunity and to get all these smart people in a room and, and, and you know, to help move people and make transportation better for uh, you know people who who really need it, and so I think it's a combination of like the people that we've assembled at May plus the impact that we're having on communities in Detroit and Grand Rapids and and Providence. The challenge that keeps you up at night. Scale always, always scale. How do we how do we go from having thirty shuttles out in the world to three hundred to three thousand to three million? Um, you know things that we could gloss over before that were minor pain points. 
doing things manually, uh, you know, become hours and hours of work. So it's really interesting. There's the work is never done, especially when you're trying to scale things. Also just sort of scaling the company, you know, putting different levels in, um, you know, really imagining what it's going to be like when we have those things. Um, that's, that's what I think about a lot. Okay. So this one might be hard. If you could go back in time and personally witness the creation of any invention, what would it be? Wow. Um, any invention. I mean, I would really like to be there when fire was invented. I feel like that would just be sort of mind mind blowing uh, when someone figured out how to do that. Going way back there. Okay. Way back, way back. <laughs> so if you hadn't gone into engineering, what would you be doing right now career-wise? Boy, I have no idea. Um, it has, you know, I, I sort of did it and I never looked back and I've never sort of thought about what else, what else I would do. Uh, and uh, I don't, I don't know what I would do if I couldn't do it now. So that would, that would be a real problem. And finally, our last question, what's the one piece of advice you'd give to aspiring engineers? Go make stuff. Simple as that, huh? On that note, thanks for joining us today, Steve. If anyone wants to follow you online or learn more about May Mobility, where should they go? Sure. Uh, my Twitter handle is at S Vozar. Uh, May Mobility is at May underscore mobility, or you can find us online at MayMobility.com. All right. We'll link those down below in the description. Thanks so much for talking with us today, Steve. Thank you very much. Great chatting with you. Bye. Thanks for tuning into the first episode of IEEE Tech Talk Innovation at Work. Never miss an episode. Subscribe at innovationatwork.ieee.org slash tech talk. Plus, we have a special offer for those of you listening before January 31st, 2020. When you subscribe, we'll email you a discount code for Steve's course, Sensors for Autonomous Vehicles. In his course, Steve discusses the role of sensors in an autonomous vehicle system, the benefits and drawbacks of different sensing modalities, and more. Thanks again for listening, and let us know who you think we should interview next by leaving a review. Bye.